Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your genes. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, I return to the Biofoundry to talk to Alex Kelly about current projects and the future of brain-computer interfaces. But first up, here's the news about computers that read your internal voice. Silent Voice. A team at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology has designed a system called Alter Ego that can pick up your internal voice through electrodes resting alongside your jaw and chin and feed sound back to you through a bone-conducting earphone. This means that nobody else can see or hear you speak and you can listen to the world around you while also hearing a computer or another person speak to you through the Alter Ego system. The intention is to offer an audio-only computer interface that is not intrusive and preserves your privacy when you're in public. You can control devices by thinking about saying voice commands and potentially communicate silently with someone else wearing the Alter Ego headset. It's a silent interface that only you can speak to and only you can hear. When you think about saying words, you unconsciously send nerve signals to all the muscles in your jaw, lips and tongue, even if you choose not to make a sound. Your brain's supplementary motor area generates the signals and sends them out, but your muscles don't act and your voice doesn't sound until your brain's motor cortex sends the activate signal. The Alter Ego headset has four electrodes that pick up the nerve and muscle signals you send when you think about saying words but don't actually speak. You don't even have to move your lips. It's worn around the jaw and chin and clipped over the top of the ear to hold it in place. Artificial intelligence software on the device recognises signals that correspond to words and passes them as input to a computer. The computer could send this as a text message that's then read out to someone else wearing an alter ego headset or command a TV or other device on your network or do calculations for you on the run, or search information for you online. The Alter Ego device only managed an average of 92% transcription accuracy in a 10-person trial, with about 15 minutes of customising to each person. However, it's new. The more data they collect from more people wearing the device, the more accurate it will get. For comparison, Google's transcription system sitting on remote servers rather than on your head, claims an accuracy of 95%. I can see the military snapping this up for silent communication and control in noisy environments. There's a huge potential here to give a voice to those who can no longer speak, or who struggle to speak clearly. It could allow people with all kinds of disabilities to use networked computer assistance without worrying that the background noise is too loud for them to hear the device, 
and without giving up their privacy, having other people's words mistaken for their own, or feeling like they're being singled out socially for being noisy. I imagine in the future, a more advanced version wouldn't need to be so visibly strapped to your head, but would pick up your nerve signals more subtly. A headset you couldn't see would be amazing for spies. For extra points of difficulty, even further in the future, you could pick up signals from the supplementary motor area of your brain instead of the nerves in your muscles. That way, the interface could be used by people with muscular dystrophy and locked-in syndrome. The Alter Ego headset was presented with a paper titled Alter Ego, a Personalised Wearable Silent Speech Interface. The Alter Ego headset was presented as an Intelligence Augmentation or IA device at the Association for Computing Machinery's Intelligent User Interface Conference in Tokyo. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Back to the biofoundry. Alex Kelly is a molecular biologist and biochemist working at the biofoundry, an open source science lab in Sydney. He's working on projects such as open source insulin and the design of genetic modification kits. But he plans to work on brain-computer interfaces, neural links, in the future. I began by asking him, what's happening at the Biofoundry? So as a community lab, we try and take enthusiastic individuals out of society who have cool ideas or are motivated to try and start their own business and provide them all of the tools and lab access they might require in order to get that up to a minimum viable product and then get them into an accelerator hub to start their own business. What sort of projects do we have here? Okay, so beyond my genetic modification and insulin production, we have got people working on mushroom cultivation, both as a uh, agricultural product for sale and also uh, for vertical automated farming and designing modular systems for that. We have got people working on biodegradable plastics made from prawn shells. Uh, for things like agricultural mulch. We have got people, we've got, we've got someone here harvesting a spider right now to be able to get its spider silk for grafts. We've got some multiple 3D printing projects in the works and we're just looking to try and set up a uh, educational space for that using the new maker space which is being set up here at Cicada Innovations. And some things with Mars terrariums and looking at terraforming projects as well. So Meow's working on a few terraforming things. So yeah, that's 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 about the, the, the whole of it at the moment. That would be Meow's Mars jars. Yeah, Meow's Mars jars are uh, looking to try and set up a perfect terrarium for simulating the Martian environment. And then once once we've got the soil content right, we'll be working on gas content and then using that as a space for breeding bacteria for terraforming. So for uh, taking the latent oxygen in the soil and putting it into the atmosphere. CRISPR-Cas9 is a tool for editing genes in live cells very precisely. The elements of the tool were copied from the way bacteria delete genes inserted by viruses that try to infect them. With CRISPR-Cas9 you can cut and paste genes. The tool is showing promise in agriculture and in medicine. 
And you're working on kits as well for the future? Yeah, for sure. So the genetic modification work that I'm doing right now is just trying to normalize how people perceive genetic modification in the in the public sphere. And so part of that is just educating exactly what we're doing, how it differs from selective breeding. And then, so the, what I'm currently working on is a CRISPR-Cas9 kit, which will turn a non-glowing bacteria into a glowing bacteria. And so just as a simple science kit that anyone from ages 10 to 90 can do, and then providing it with different levels of educational resources to change the amount that you get out of it. So if you're a, a high school student wanting to make a bacteria glow, you can do that. But if you're a university student looking to figure out how to design your own CRISPR-Cas9 experiment, this would also be a valuable resource for you. Because I know there's some in the US already kits vaguely in that direction. What sort of prices would people have as an entry level? So the kits being sold in America... No, I can't offer them for free. I wish I could offer them for free. Now, the kits being sold in America are being sold between 150 and 200 US dollars. Probably be looking at a similar cost to that. The overall cost of all the components for the kits probably going to come to between 80 and 100 US dollars, and the majority of that is is glassware and a pipette because the pipette's a pretty valuable thing for making sure you're measuring out accurate volumes. But of course, we'll sell a BioFoundry branded pipette, so it's going to be a nice little bit of uh, advertising for us as well. <laughs> And no doubt you have workshops here. Yeah, so we've got a, got a number of workshops already set up. So I currently teach ones on bacterial uh, culture making, sterile technique, um, and then also gel agarose electrophoresis, the PCR reaction. And I'm currently trying to add to that suite, but at the moment it's all about getting the Biofoundry lab space up to a real level of functionality where we can do all of the stuff that a very serious microbiology and molecular biology lab could do. So, and that mostly involves upscaling and converting old university equipment, like this uh, bacterial shaker we're working on just now, to, uh, to be functional again. <laughs> Side story, we think that the motherboard for that is broken, but there's a small chance that it was just a D battery that was plugged in there that was completely out of charge, and that they, they, they gave it to us for free, even though it was just a, a battery that was flat. So, <laughs> it'd be really great if it turns out that we don't have to do any more changes to that than just uh, changing that D battery. So is that equipment that a university was otherwise going to throw out? Yes, exactly. So the universities will tend to either just throw it out in the landfill or sell it overseas to other universities that just want to get secondhand equipment from. Uh, and so a lot of universities will put a lot of effort into trying to repair this equipment, but sometimes it will go out of date or it will reach it's the end of its warranty. So they'll just be looking to get rid of it and replace it with something new, uh, especially with UNSW and UCID building so many new science and technology buildings at the moment. They're selling a lot of their old equipment, chucking it out, and it's a great opportunity for a place like Biofoundry to become a better resource to the community. The way that you would be able to give those uh, CRISPR-Cas9 kits away is if you were sponsored properly. Yes, exactly. So if, uh, if, <laughs> if we were able to develop ourselves as an educational institution and actually pr prove that we're a valuable resource for educating schools and such, the ideal would be to get a partnership with either, either some high schools around Australia for selling the kits as high school kits or as a teacher further education, so for high school chemistry, physics and biology teachers to be able to do a couple of day course and further training for them and be able to allow them to properly understand what's going on and then either teach the kits itself to their students or design an experiment of their own to be able to teach their high school. That would be a fantastic way for us to be able to break into the education market. Did you see in the news recently there was the suggestion that 
CRISPR-Cas9 might not work on human cells? Yeah, okay. So there's, there's, there's a lot of interesting things um, in the news going on about CRISPR-Cas9. There was an article published about six months ago after a study showed lots and lots of off-target effects from CRISPR-Cas9, which caused the stock price of almost every company invested in that technology to drop about 30 to 40%. Since then, that paper's actually been revoked by the people who, who wrote it, and they've realised that those were all background off-target uh, off mutations that were occurring anyway and hadn't actually been normalized for that plus when that article came out everyone was pretty determined to explain that we understand that CRISPR-Cas9 in its wild type form does have a lot of off-target effects um, the the main thing that we were working on at the time and a lot of scientists were working on was to categorize and understand how those off-target effects work and then develop a CRISPR a second or third generation CRISPR that actually doesn't have those and that's where we're really getting to with these single Nikkei's CRISPR Cas9 systems and, and more advanced ones that perform cuts a lot more specifically are able to do cuts without the original PAM site, which was a big limitation on what you could cut. And also just working on our understanding of how cells repair those cuts because the CRISPR-Cas9 kit, it's, sorry, CRISPR-Cas9 protein, it's important to remember that that itself is only a cutter and all of the repair occurs using internal systems of biology that already exist within our cells. So properly figuring out how to hijack homologous recombination and being able to then turn that cut into a successful mutation that's exactly what you want and using com computer and, le and learning algorithms to figure out how that works, that's really where the science is directed. So I would say that, and then in terms of its applications on human cells, that's really a delivery problem. It's really easy for us to heat shock CRISPR-Cas9 into bacterial cells because we're pretty fine with killing off a thousand bacteria if one bacteria ends up successfully transforming. But the heat shock is quite a, a stressful thing and certainly one way that we can't get uh, materials into human cells. So most of the techniques tend to revolve around using adeno-associated viruses and those, those come with their own risks and associated things that we need to think about. So I... Uh, I absolutely do think that CRISPR-Cas9 would work on human cells. I think that our current understandings of delivery and ways of doing that, so especially the like people like Josiah Zainer who have tried to modify their cells in America, they uh, probably will not observe much, if any, change to their uh, to their cells, especially since. Even our understanding of how uh, planned somatic mutations work uh, in comparison to, for example, germline mutations where we're actually mutating a, uh, an, an egg, a sperm, or a zygote, that's, that makes a lot more sense, and we understand the long-term effects of those a lot more than, for example, just changing the DNA within a few cells within your arm. We don't know whether that's actually going to re result in more muscle mass or just be seen as the body as a... Uh, infection or, a, or some kind of uh, exogenous thing which is coming in and affecting the local system. I was reading something recently that said they found antibodies to Cas9 in humans. So the suggestion was that there's golden staph and a whole bunch of other bacteria that use Cas9 and so that most humans seem to be, well, have antibodies against it and that might stop it being used in the body fascinating i had not heard about that paper that would definitely limit our ability to do that or but but then again with our ability to change how the cas9 protein cuts and also to i mean there's there certainly is a good chance that there's resistance to wild type cas9 so so yeah if, if antibodies are able to select and figure out that the cas9 has entered into the cells or it's in the bloodstream it certainly would be targeted the once it's actually inside of the cells the human immune system does struggle to a lot of the time to recognize what's going on so then it would often just be a case of a 
delivery problem again. So if you're able to get the Cas9 intact into the cells, at that stage it's beyond the reach of the immune system. So it definitely would be a really interesting problem to try and work your way around. I, it's just like everything in this Cas9, CRISPR-Cas9 field, it requires more research and more time and more understanding. So, yeah. Did you read the other thing I was looking at recently in this area? I don't think it was CRISPR-Cas9, although why not? Some researchers recently engineered some human cells to work as full adders so they could do arithmetic. And like full adders means that they're arithmetically complete. They can do any arithmetic, which means potentially not only... Well, they can do computation yeah. is the thing. They only had eight cells that could do full adding with three inputs to do, to do it all, but it's shows where things can go. Are those chemical inputs or are they, is this more playing around with the DNA? Are the other bacteria, do you, do, do you know how they actually show the result of their adding? That's fascinating. So it's, yes. So it's, it's up on the web actually from yeah. last week's show. It's yeah, three it. chemical inputs. Yeah. So the idea of the researchers is they want to have a sensor in your body that can diagnose disease yeah. from three different inputs. Mm. And then it could glow, for example. They've made it do that. Yeah. Or it can put chemicals out or whatever. But at the moment, oh, it's glowing. Wow, that is really fascinating. I mean, we're really sort of starting to understand the computational capabilities and, and uh, the uh, 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 how wonderful nucleic acids are for storing information. And, and even now, there's still so much of the genetic code that we don't understand exactly how it works. But being able to hijack those systems and then use them as a kind of biological computer is something which people in our field have been fascinated with for 30, 40 years and will continue to be. We were discussing this morning about the Biomod competition, which is an excellent arena for the design of these type of things and trying to build biological robotics and biological computers. So I'm really, really fascinated about that kind of thing. I think that um, especially trying to engineer things which occur on a slightly more macro scale than just on the nucleotide basis, if you're actually able to produce a glowing protein or some kind of diagnostic that we can then directly observe without having to get in there and look at genomics would be a really, really excellent addition to this kind of field. So, wow, that's really fascinating. I, I'm going to look up that interview and <laughs> make sure I pay more attention to diffusion science radio <laughs> well i've been looking into all these for the news part of the show so the other thing i saw recently is someone looking at engineered bacteria that respond to electrical signals yes. so you can give it instructions to do things is that the sort of level because it's bacteria yeah. that's more in what the biofoundry might be able to do yeah so that would be that would, that would certainly be something which is in our limit uh, within our limits in a pc1 lab to play around with i, I make it a very uh, open secret that i'm extremely interested in doing direct neural interfaces later on in my field of study and so heading across to the geneva health forum next week there are a number of people number of people who are working on that and the main way we do it without implants right now is through eegs and measuring the electrical outputs that are occurring that can be read from outside of the brain and a lot of the technology in this field mostly revolves around how we can interpret what's going on there. So I think that being able to mess around in bacterial models of this would give us a, a, a nice case study for exactly what an electrical output means in terms of what's going on biologically. So that is, that is really, really fascinating. 
just to go a little bit further at the Geneva Health Forum, this team which is going to have this neural interface, they've designed a small game kind of like Pong where you are able to control your character and move it up by thinking red square and down by thinking blue triangle. And that's, that's a very simplistic way of trying to read EEG signals and translate them into a, into a computer code. But there was another study just published this last week on machine learning algorithms that are being tuned to this now. And so they're able to take in a great deal more data and try and understand exactly what's going on within the brain and then interpret that. So these, these machine learning algorithms, kind of like Google's Deep Dream, will then will take your signal and try and figure out exactly what you're thinking. And it won't get it right now, but in, the, in, in five years of learning or even a few, few months of learning, it might be able to really accurately determine what you're thinking just from reading the signal outputs of your brain. That sounds dangerous. It sounds, it's extremely dangerous. I don't know if you watched Altered Carbon yet, but that show is, is full of the perils. And so, as is Black Mirror, full of the perils that direct neural interfaces suggest for our society. The biggest one, I think, in the short term is allowing your brain to be hacked. Because if you provide a interface for your brain to be able to communicate the in, to the internet, uh, unfortunately, the internet's going to be able to communicate with you. And so, you've got to be very, very careful about how we, how we start to engage in this technology. But on the other hand, it might be even more dangerous to not engage in it because as Elon Musk says, if we don't find a way to merge ourselves with AI soon, we might find ourselves subsumed and forgotten as a evolutionary byproduct of history. Well, that's one of those things. So like the Internet of Things mm-hmm. has come to the idea of security very late. Yes. So almost all the Internet of Things on the market don't have security built in and still are sold that way. And they're starting to realise that that's a really bad idea. It's a really bad idea. Yeah. So... Who's working on security for neural links? Well, I don't even know. I don't even know if, if a company or a private company developed a security algorithm, whether we as the public would be able to trust them. It's been a, it's been a very very long understood belief that public interests in the development of security algorithms are often thought to outweigh the private interests and so you end up with governments having um, secret backdoor access to or day zero backdoors that have always existed within these technologies so we'd have to be incredibly careful and and really have a I, I don't know whether we, we would trust a private or a public institution to be able to develop a security protocol that's that's really trustworthy enough to, tr- to trust your brain with it. So I think potentially a lot of two-step, three-step authentication is going to be required here and, and having a public and private key and having so something like a two-step authentication dongle for any kind of signal that's going into your brain might be necessary. But it's really going to have to be a matter of being able to limit limit upload as well when you do that, and and so and figure out some way of stopping a rogue signal that's coming in at the wrong time. But yeah, the, it's a, it's a really scary field, and the the people who are intrepid enough to put in the first neural interfaces into their brain are going to be putting themselves in an extreme risk by doing so. Yeah, I'm. I don't. I don't know if it's going to stop me. I'm really, really excited to try it out. And I like. And the the sheer implications of what we can do once we actually do this. For example, increasing the bandwidth of sensory inputs. We can only see in a very, very narrow band of visible light spectrum. Why not expand that to the entire UV spectrum as well, and and see see the sunsets in an entirely new light. No, no pun intended. <laughs> I'm especially excited for the implications that direct neural interfaces are going to have for end of life and palliative care. I currently have a 103-year-old great-grandmother who's been living in a retirement home for a few years. She was amazing playing golf until she was 97. But even, even her incredible body has eventually failed her and left her in a state where her 
brilliant mind, which still can remember poetry word for word is trapped in a decaying carbon life form and so i would love to be able to free her from the limitations of her body and put her into an augmented or virtual reality and allow her to continue to contribute and interact with society because there is such an incredible amount of mental asset that is being wasted by being in retirement homes and if you can free them from the pain of living and um the turpor of being in a body that's that's slowly falling apart Put their put their body into a state of 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 relaxation where it can be treated with all of the, our greatest medicines, and then allow them to interact in society either in a virtual re, uh, environment through an avatar or in an augmented uh, environment through a a mobile walking physical avatar, for example, a, a, a bipedal robot, you would absolutely be able to allow these people to move out of the retirement home and back into society. And who knows in terms of uh, what comes after life after you spend enough time existing in that kind of state. That's, that's, that's me going on a future rant. <laughs> I, yeah, sorry. Alex, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Ian. A pleasure as always. That was Alex Kelly at the Biofoundry talking about do-it-yourself engineering and brain-computer interfaces. You can find the Biofoundry online at foundry.bio and on Facebook at biohacksyd. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on radio? Record a voice memo on your phone or use the voicemail tab on the website. We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio to support the show. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of incompetech.com. Sound check and fact checking by Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 27 stations on the Community Radio Network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2NVR in Nambucca Valley, 3NBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, and 7LTN City Park Radio in Launceston, Tasmania. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos from this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than 900 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. 
everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of sciences found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.